Uh, I'm delighted to introduce David J. Silverman, who's a professor at George Washington University, where he specializes in Native American, Colonial American, and American racial history. He is the author of four books, Thunder Sticks, Red Brethren, Ninigret, and Faith and Boundaries. His essays have won major awards from the Omohundro Institute of Early American History and Culture and the New York State Historical Association. In case you hadn't noticed, Thanksgiving is next week, uh, the 400th anniversary of that first meal, and today's speaker offers a transformative new look at the Plymouth Colony's founding event, told for the first time with the Wampanoag people at the heart of the story in his This Land is Their Land, the Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the troubled history of Thanksgiving. Kirkus Reviews and Booklets both starred this book, and Joseph Kelly, who spoke here about the Jamestown Colony last year, called it the most important book you need to read before the 400th anniversary of the first Thanksgiving. Apropos of our own exhibition, another reviewer called it required reading for how not to treat indigenous peoples. Please join me in welcoming David Silverman. Well, thank you for that introduction. Thanks for everyone coming out on a dreary day. Uh, I must say, uh, I've spoken in a lot of nice rooms in, in my time, but none quite as stately and, and beautiful as this one. Uh, so it's, it's great to be here. I want to offer some uh, contextual remarks before I, I leap into the heart of, of this talk. Uh, I need to explain, I, I like Thanksgiving a lot. Um, <laughs> And uh, yeah, I like to gorge myself on pie as much as, as the next guy, as, as my family and friends here uh, know well. Um, however, I must warn you, I'm going to provide you with plenty of ammunition uh, today to ruin your family's holiday. <laughs> I, I realize, of course, some of you are perfectly capable of doing that without any assistance <laughs> from me, um, but, but fair warning. I also want to note, it, it might be jarring to some members of this audience to see the word Indians in my book title and to hear me use it during my remarks today. So I want to explain what I'm doing here. Everybody knows Indians is a misnomer propagated by Europeans. After all, we're not in India, right? Now in recent decades, some people have substituted the term Native Americans for Indians in an effort to be more accurate and racially sensitive. And yet, in the course of my many years of interacting with indigenous people all across the United States, I've learned that most of them, albeit not all of them, favor the term Indian when referring to them in the aggregate, though almost to a person, they prefer tribal names when appropriate. And so it's out of deference, not indifference, to them that I use this word. I also want to emphasize that though my book focuses on historical Wampanoags and strives to include their voices at every, opportuni uh, every opportunity, I'm not Wampanoag. I don't know if you, you gather that from my surname, but I'm not. And this is not a history told from a modern Wampanoag perspective. To be sure, my conversations with modern Wampanoags have informed the content. Indeed, I wouldn't have written this book had it not been for those conversations. But there's material in this book that some Wampanoag people will consider dubious, outright wrong, and even none of my business as an outsider. 
I've done my best to weigh those criticisms in advance. At every step of this research, I've engaged in conversations with, with my Wampanoag friends and colleagues. I've circulated drafts of this book among Wampanoag people and asked for their, their critique. I've offered to include dissenting opinions alongside my interpretations in print, even while acknowledging that the playing field's uneven because I'm, I'm the author. Ultimately, all the editorial decisions in this book belong to me alone. And in the final analysis, I've had to make a number of tough choices based on the standards of my discipline of history. So this is a long way of saying, I urge all of you here to seek out the Wampanoag's own tellings of this history, and they're widely available in print, in film, and online. I cite a number of those sources in my endnotes. You can also just do a basic Google search and they'll pop up left and right. My hope here is that Wampanoag and other indigenous readers will see a, an informed, well-intentioned attempt to fulfill the Indian call to take Indian history seriously within the context of a greater American history. And so with that, for generations, Americans have been telling themselves a patriotic story of the supposed first Thanksgiving that treats colonization as a consensual, bloodless affair. In this tale, the pilgrims, religious dissenters from England, cram aboard the Mayflower, as pictured here, to brave the stormy Atlantic in search of freedom of conscience in America. These sea-tossed adventurers land off Cape Cod with a fresh copy of their proto-constitution, the Mayflower Compact. I suspect many of you read that Mayflower Compact in grade school. And after some fruitless exploring and brief contacts with the natives, decide to found their settlement up the coast at a place they call Plymouth. Yet the future of the colony is very much in doubt during its first couple of months because the Indians, rarely identified by tribe, on whom the English know they must depend for food and protection, seem to be at best wary and shy, and at worst, hostile. However, eventually the natives reach out to the newcomers through the interpreters, Samoset and Squanto. The story sidesteps the obvious question of how these figures managed to learn English, more on that later, nor does it explain why the Indians suddenly became so friendly. The native's chief, Usamequin, who the English and probably most of you know better by his title, Massasoit, so Usamequin and Massasoit are the same guy, he even agrees to a treaty of alliance with Plymouth. Over the spring and summer, the Indians feed the pilgrims and teach them how to plant corn and where to fish, whereupon the colony begins to thrive. That fall, the parties seal their friendship with the famous First Thanksgiving, as memorialized in this painting. The piece that follows permits colonial New England, and by extension, modern America, to become blessed seats of freedom, democracy, Christianity, and plenty. As for what happens to the Indians next, the story has nothing to say. The Indians' legacy is to present America as a gift to white people, or in other words, to concede to colonialism, like Pocahontas and Sacagawea, the other famous Indians of early American history 
they help the colonizers and then move off stage. Note, the Indians we remember are the ones who helped. The Wampanoags of what is now southeastern Massachusetts, who are the Indians in this drama, have long contended that this tale is not history, but a myth that sugarcoats the viciousness of colonialism for indigenous people. My book reckons with this uncomfortable assertion and its implications. For instance, in traditional accounts of Thanksgiving, the pilgrims step onto Plymouth Rock and into a new world or wilderness, when in fact, human civilization in the Americas was every bit as rich and ancient as in Europe. What you're seeing here is a, uh, a drawing of the Wampanoag community of Patuxet, where the English would later found Plymouth in 1605, 15 years before the arrival of the Mayflower. And as you can see here, these people had a civilization. Indeed, history didn't begin for the Wampanoags with the arrival of the Mayflower. They had a dynamic past, countless generations old, that shaped who they were and what they did, including how they responded to the Mayflower passengers. In other words, they inhabited not a new world, they inhabited an old world. And as you can see here, that so-called wilderness in which the English arrived was full of villages, roads, cornfields, historic monuments, cemeteries, and forests cleared of underbrush, all by native design. The Wampanoag's recent history, not just their ancient history, mattered too. Though the Thanksgiving myth suggests that the Pilgrim Wampanoag encounter was a first contact episode, in fact, it was just one in a string of bloody meetings between the Wampanoags and Europeans since 1524, and particularly since 1602 onward, as another drawing by Champlain captures. This, by the way, is on another French voyage the following year. He's documenting here a clash between these French colonists and the Monomoyic uh, Wampanoags, um, who lived right at the elbow of Cape Cod, modern-day town of, of, of Chatham. Um, indeed, many of these, these clashes between Wampanoags and European explorers resulted in the Europeans taking Wampanoags captive and sometimes selling them into slavery. That's how Squanto knew English. He had been an English captive for years, sold into slavery in Spain. He managed to escape, made his way to England, lived with the English for years, and returned to New England in 1619, six months before the arrival of the Mayflower. The Thanksgiving myth portrays the Wampanoags as timid and overawed by the pilgrims, but I show the Wampanoags were easily the stronger party during Plymouth's early years. And here is a map of Wampanoag country. The English did not dictate to the Wampanoags, not at first. Instead, the Wampanoags initially used Plymouth Colony as a pawn in their tribal and intertribal politics, which were at the center of their lives. I think it will come as a surprise to most of my readers and probably to most of you, might even come as a disappointment, that that celebrated first Thanksgiving actually played a minor role in this relationship. It didn't matter all that much. 
Indeed, as we'll see later when I show you the primary source account of this event, it's only four lines long, and hardly anyone talked about it after it was over. Far more influential in shaping this alliance were a series of other less palatable episodes filled with violence and power politics. I also submit that our emphasis on the nearly 50 years of peace, strictly defined, following the first Thanksgiving and its associated Treaty of 1621, as memorialized here, elides the more important point, that the Wampanoags came to resent the colonists' aggressive and underhanded expansion. The truth is that the English and the Wampanoags nearly came to blows repeatedly during that supposed long peace, particularly after the death of Usamequin, or Massasoit, in 1660, culminating in the terrible King Philip's War of 1675-76. Most histories that bother to include the Wampanoags end with King Philip's War, but my book contends that accounting with the Thanksgiving myth as a white lie requires tracing Wampanoag struggles with colonialism through the centuries right up to the present day. And here's a, an image along that trajectory. This perspective is especially urgent as modern America grapples with new manifestations of white nationalism, while at the very same time, indigenous Americans in New England and all across the country, having passed through the apocalypse, are reasserting their political, economic, and cultural sovereignty. We need long-term historical perspectives in order to understand these developments, and in some ways they're linked. To explore these themes and bring Wampanoag voices to the fore, I'm gonna focus this talk around three cases spread across the centuries in which Wampanoags or other native people closely affiliated with them posed counter-narratives to white people's triumphalist histories. Our first revisionist historian is none other than the Wampanoag sachem, or chief, Pometacom. By the way, I realize a lot of these names are unfamiliar. Try to stick with me on all of this. So um, here we have Pometacom. Um, he's probably better known to you as King Philip, or Philip, or Metacom, or Metacomet. He was the son of Usamequin, or Massasoit. And in the late spring of 1675, 50 years after his father had greeted the pilgrims, Pometacom sat down to meet with a delegation of English magistrates from the colony of Rhode Island. And so here's um, that map of Wampanoag country again, and this will show you where this talk took place. So right on the northeast side of Narragansett Bay. The Rhode Islanders were there to encourage the sachem, or chief, to agree to a peaceful arbitration of the Wampanoag's mounting tensions with neighboring Plymouth Colony. Yet I contend that Pometacom had already resolved to fight and agreed to this conference only to explain why. Let's consider what he said that day. And I should note here, we know what he said that day because the Rhode Islanders recorded it. It's one of the very few documents of its kind where we have a full speech by a Wampanoag leader, and I fully believe that he gave this speech in the Wampanoag language, 
and that it was the Rhode Islanders, most of whom were bilingual in English and Wampanoag because of Wampanoag power, who translated it into the English language. So Pometacom viewed the history of Wampanoag-English relations as little more than the colonists' failure to live up to the promise of the 1621 alliance. The sachem recalled that when the pilgrims first landed at Plymouth 55 years later, his father, Usamequin, and I quote here, was as a great man and the English as a little child. In other words, he's saying, my father was like a father to you when you were but a wee babe. Here, by the way, is Usamequin's mark uh, left on an English land deed. Pometacom contended that his father, Usamequin, could have wiped out the infant colony if he had wished. Instead, he held back its native enemies, fed the starving colonists, and granted them land. Now, let's be clear, uh, Pometacom was no more of an objective historian than anyone else. He conveniently left out that his father had made this choice less out of altruism than a need for allies. Fact was that the Wampanoags had been hobbled by a plague, a European epidemic, between 1616 and 1619, whereupon their Narragansett rivals to the West, who didn't contract the disease, began subjugating them to the status of tributaries. So they're under pressure. Pometacom also overlooked his father's desire to become the point man in trade with the English in order to consolidate his authority over the loose Wampanoag polity. But generally, Pometacom was correct that Plymouth would have become yet another English lost colony had it not been for Wampanoag largesse. And how did Plymouth show its gratitude decades later, now that it had become the great man and the Wampanoags the little child? Here, by the way, is Pometacom's or Phillips' mark on a deed. Pometacom cited the example that in 1662, Plymouth had seized and, he alleged, fatally poisoned his brother, Wamsutta, or Alexander, because the English feared that he was plotting an anti-colonial league. I actually think they were right. More recently, the English had used Christian Indian testimony to arrest, try, and execute three of Pometacom's men for the supposed murder, not of a colonist, but of another Christian Indian, John Sassaman, went to Harvard, by the way, who had been leaking Wampanoag intelligence to colonial authorities. To Pometacom, Plymouth Colony's executions of the supposed Sassaman murderers and its presumed assassination of his brother, Wamsutta, were bad enough as discrete events, but worse still was that they crystallized a vast array of English wrongs. Pometacom denounced, and by the way, this language is, is quite staggered. Try to stick with me as I'm quoting from the documents here. So Pometacom denounced that in English courts, and I quote here, if 20 honest Indians testified that an Englishman had done them wrong, it was as nothing. But if one of the worst Indians testified against any Indian suspected by the English, that was sufficient. Furthermore, the English had begun to interfere 
in criminal matters between Wampanoags within Wampanoag territory. Pometacom railed, and I quote again, that whatever was only between Indians and not in English townships. So in other words, criminal matters between Wampanoags that don't take place in English towns, they would not have us prosecute. About half the Wampanoags, mostly on Cape Cod and the islands of Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket, had adopted Christianity. And what you're seeing here, by the way, this is a page from the first Bible ever printed in North America. It's in the Wampanoag language. And what you're seeing in these other slides, this is marginalia written by Wampanoag people who acquired literacy in their own native language in mission schools, and they're responding to biblical passages. So it's mostly Eastern Wampanoags on the Cape and the islands who are embracing these missions. Well, once they did so, they generally swore off Pometacom's leadership, including the obligation to pay him tribute. And they feared no reprisal from him because by virtue of their Christianity, they now enjoyed English protection. So suffice it to say, Pometacom is quite hostile towards the mission. There were other issues as well. What you see here, by the way, is a, uh, a map of English expansion in Plymouth and an Indian land deed to the English. The English used such land deeds, some of them fair, a great many of them foul, to claim Wampanoag territory for their own exclusive use under their own exclusive jurisdiction. I ask my students often, imagine a flotilla of Wampanoag canoes or Michoons crosses the Atlantic to England. And when they arrive, they buy land from English peasants. Would that land now be under Wampanoag jurisdiction? Or would the Wampanoags have bought into the jurisdiction of England? And they say, of course, they've bought into the jurisdiction of England. Well, that's not how it worked when the English came over to this side of the pond. They assumed that when they bought native land, it passed out of native society and into English society. Well, that pattern ran contrary to the natives' expectations, that their land sales merely conveyed permission for the English to settle among them, and that the English would operate according to Wampanoag rules. And when Indians resisted, colonists flooded the contested tracts with livestock and slapped any Indians who injured the animals with trumped-up criminal fines and lawsuits. In other words, these animals served as wandering pr private property claims. Wampanoag scratched their heads that colonists didn't compensate them for hunting deer. The point of all of this was to force holdout natives to release their claims and resign themselves to the English interpretation of these sales. Such machinations gave the colonists, as Pometacom put it, 100 times more land than now the king, when he said king, he meant himself, gave them 100 times more land than now the king had for his own people. To the Wampanoags then, English law was but a shakedown by people with short memories and thin loyalty. Back to the map. Given these patterns, Pometacom asked rhetorically, why would he put any faith in a negotiated settlement 
as proposed by the Rhode Islanders. History taught that the English would just use some technical violation as an excuse to confiscate his land or even murder him. The Rhode Islanders, seeing where this conversation was headed, cautioned Pometacom that it would be suicidal for him and for the rest of the Wampanoags to resort to arms because, they said, the English were too strong for them. In that case, the sachem retorted, and I quote, then the English should do to them, the Wampanoags, as they did when they were too strong for the English. In other words, he called on colonists to assume the role of the great man by acting with generosity, restraint, and justice toward the Wampanoag little child. And that's where the conference ended, because everyone knew this wish was futile. Just days later, Pometacom led a Wampanoag force against nearby English towns, prompting a war that would engulf the entire region and ultimately break the back of Indian power in southern New England. And here you see a map of that most significant war. This war, King Philip's War, is the most basic feature of the Wampanoag-English relationship that the Thanksgiving myth studiously ignores. This is where it ended. Initially, Wampanoag resistance fighters got the best of it by repeatedly sacking exposed English settlements and ambushing troops on the march. Furthermore, soon they had a broad base of Indian support from the Nipmucks of what's now central Massachusetts, from the Narragansetts, their longstanding enemies of what's now Rhode Island, from the Pocumtucks and the Sokokis of the upper Connecticut River Valley, whom the colonists turned into enemies by violating their neutrality, such as attempting to confiscate their arms. The English made things even worse for themselves by treating the thousands of Christian Indians who pledged fealty to the colonies at the start of this war as wolves in sheep's clothing. Massachusetts and Plymouth herded the Christian Indians into island concentration camps, including Deer Island out in, in Mass Bay, where the people suffered malnutrition and exposure. The warring Indians took advantage of these colonial missteps to accumulate victories in which they took the lives of upwards of 3,000 Englishmen, destroyed 16 colonial towns, and slaughtered 800 head of cattle. Eventually, however, the resistance collapsed, largely, not entirely, but largely, because other Indians threw in their lot with the English. I want to call your attention just a moment to the Hudson River Valley right here. I'm going to show you a close-up right here. So in February 1676, the Mohawks, the easternmost nation of the Haudenosaunee's, or Five Nations Iroquois, as a gesture of alliance to the young English colony of New York, drove Pometacom's winter camp away from Dutch and French gun markets on the Hudson River and eastward back into the teeth of colonial New England forces. And so this is the pattern that you, you see here. And so back to the map. This is the direction in which the Mohawks are driving the warring Indians. Also lying in wait alongside the English were the Mohegans 
and Pequots uh, of what's now Connecticut, and Christian Wampanoags from Cape Cod, who under duress, let's be clear, sided with the colonies from the beginning and were just as adept at forest warfare as the resistance fighters. Meanwhile, the warring Indians and their families were stalked by hunger and disease as they lived in cramped quarters on the run away from their cornfields and fishing stations. Consequently, by the late spring of 1676, growing numbers of them began to accept a late English offer of quarter in exchange for switching sides, or in other words, in exchange for now warring on the side of the English. Others managed to escape this terrible choice by escaping to the upper Hudson River Valley or Canada where they made new lives, but most of them never made it that far. By June 1676, Indian prisoners were telling their English captors that Pometacom was, quote, ready to die, for you have now killed or taken all his relations and almost broke his heart. Those relations included his wife, Watuna Kanuski, and his son, we don't know his name, who colonists captured and sold into the horrors of Caribbean slavery. They were but two of an estimated 2,000 Indians, men, women, and children alike, who the English sentenced to slavery in this war. And not only in New England, but as far away as the West Indies, Gibraltar, and Tangier. I should note that they're a drop in the bucket in the overall range of Native people enslaved by colonists during the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. Our best estimates are between three and five million indigenous people suffered enslavement at European hands during that period. In this particular case, some of these poor souls had surrendered based on English promises of mercy, only to discover that the terms were far harsher than colonial officials had pledged. Worse still, some Indians learned too late that colonial authorities would not suspect any native person they suspected, and by the way, their, their judgment here wasn't um, particularly strict, uh, who they suspected of having taken an English life. Massachusetts, Plymouth, and Rhode Island held public executions throughout the summer of 1676, including 50 hangings on Boston Common alone, as indicated on this map. There's no monument, there's no memorial to that most significant event on the common. The English even act exacted retribution on the dead. On August 6, colonial forces discovered the drowned body of Wiedemu, a female sachem and war leader and the sister of Pometacom's wife. Authorities ordered her head to be severed and piked next to a holding pen full of Wampanoag prisoners of war. The captives, according to the, the colonists' own accounts, quote, made a most horrid and diabolical lamentation, crying out, it was their queen's head. A few days after this incident, Pometacom was dead too, shot down by a Christian Indian named Alderman. Filled with a vengeful spirit, Captain Benjamin Church had the sachem dismembered and his head sent to Plymouth. There, on the very site 
where the sachem's father had allied and feasted with the pilgrims. Authorities mounted their grisly trophy outside the town gate and left it there to rot for the next 20 years. It is likely one of the last things Pometacom's wife saw when Plymouth shipped her from her homeland into slavery. Later that week, Plymouth held a day of thanksgiving in praise of God for saving the colony from its enemies. I think we can all agree these horrors are as contrary to the Thanksgiving story as it gets. Though history rarely pays attention to the Wampanoags after King Philip's War, my book emphasizes that this conflict was just the first stage in a centuries-long battle for the people to defend their land and sovereignty. It should come as no surprise to the people in this room that the English seized nearly all of the Wampanoags' land in the decades after the war, leaving only a handful of town-sized reservations for mostly Christian Indians. Please note, I didn't frame this process as the Wampanoags losing their land as if by mistake. That's the usual formulation. No, colonists and their successors took it. The English also seized the Wampanoags as bound laborers. From the late 1600s through the mid-1800s, white merchant creditors, courts, and government-appointed guardians colluded to force the Wampanoags and their children into indentured servitude to white farmers, householders, and whaling merchants, with the terms often lasting for several years and even decades. Such debt peonage and court-ordered servitude, one historian calls it judicial enslavement, made it nearly impossible for the Wampanoags to sustain their normal social patterns, including the process of raising their own children, to the point that few Wampanoags could speak their natal language by the mid-19th century. Enter William Apis, the Pequot-born preacher to the Mashpee Wampanoags of Cape Cod, who is our second native figure after Pometacom to dispute white Americans' self-serving, sanitized histories. In 1836, right in the middle of Jacksonian Indian removal, Apis wrote his eulogy on King Philip, and by the way, delivered it before a, an all-white audience in Boston. And in this eulogy on King Philip, he used a revisionist account of the Pilgrim Saga to call attention to the plight of, of indigenous people not only in the southeast, where most New Englanders' attention were, was focused during removal, but right here at home. In it, Apis argued that Indians were the real heroes of Plymouth's founding, because they comported themselves like model Christians, whereas the supposedly saintly pilgrims behaved like villains and hypocrites. Apis meticulously laid out how the pilgrims had introduced themselves to the Wampanoags by desecrating their graves and looting their corn on Cape Cod, then had the audacity to turn to Usamequin for help. Yet the chief, to his moral credit, obliged, like a true Christian, imbued with the principles of charity and forgiveness. No people could be used better than they were, Apis intoned. 
The Wampanoags gave the English venison and sold them many hogsheads of corn. Had it not been for this humane act of the Indians, every white man would have been swept from the New England colonies. Apis also contended that Usamequins, or Massasoit's son, Pometacom, was, quote, the greatest man that ever lived upon the American shores. Apis ranked him even higher than my university's namesake, George Washington, because the sachem, he said, fought against a darker tyranny and for greater freedom with far fewer means at his disposal. In Apis's telling, Pometacom was no misguided hothead for taking up arms against colonial dominance. Rather, he was a sage because he foresaw, and I quote, that the white people would not only cut down their groves, but would enslave them. And how true the prophecy, our groves and hunting grounds are gone, our dead are dug up, our council fires are put out. It was, an all, it was all an outgrowth, as Apis put it, of, quote, a fire, a canker, created by the pilgrims from across the Atlantic to burn and destroy my poor, unfortunate brethren. By the way, this is where Apis preached uh, when he wasn't in Boston giving speeches. In light of this sordid history, Apis proposed that Indians should treat every December 22nd, the anniversary of the Pilgrim's Landing in Plymouth, and every 4th of July as, quote, days of mourning and not joy. Let them rather fast and pray to the Great Spirit, the Indian's God, who deals out mercy to his red children and not destruction. This call by Apis for Indians to commemorate that they bore the burden of white America's triumphs would continue to resonate with the Wampanoags long after he was gone, and we'll get back to that point in a moment. Less than 40 years later, in the late 1860s and the early 1870s, Massachusetts addressed the stubborn refusal of the Wampanoags to disappear by dissolving their reservations of Mashpee, Herring Pond, Gayhead, Chappaquiddick, Christiantown, and others. The state divided the common lands of these places into private property tracts, subjected those lands to taxation, and confiscation for debt, and declared the inhabitants to be full-fledged citizens and no longer Indians, as if the two were antithetical. Here, by the way, is a map of the division of, of the Indian reservation on Chappaquiddick. White officials congratulated themselves that, in their magnanimity, they had bestowed legal equality on Indians, just as white New Englanders were pressuring pressuring Southerners to do with black freedmen and women under Reconstruction. They wouldn't listen to the Wampanoags, who protested that this supposed gift of citizenship was actually a Trojan horse to rob them of their remaining lands and force them to scatter. And that was indeed the point. White proponents of this measure, at their more honest moments, admitted that they considered the Wampanoags to be too racially intermixed to be classified as Indians any longer. The way that white people reckon Indian racial identity is that any 
mixing with other people leads to Indian disappearance. That's quite deliberate. Blackness doesn't work that way. The goal of white people is to have the servile black labor pool expand. And so when you have a non-black parent and a black parent, the child is black. The Indian child becomes a half-blood, and they're a quarter-blood, and poof, they're gone. That's the colonial goal. What's more, white proponents also declared that regardless of whether the Wampanoags were mixed or to what degree, it was the fate of Indians to vanish. Over the next century, white Americans did everything they could to make that supposedly natural process occur, including reducing Indians to bit parts in the country's history, as exemplified in the Thanksgiving myth. It will come as some su surprise, I think, to most of the people here that throughout the colonial era, Thanksgiving had no association whatsoever with pilgrims and Indians. Not during the 1600s, not during the 1700s. The link between the holiday and that story appears to date to 1841, when the Reverend Alexander Young published a primary source account, which you see here, of a 1621 harvest feast hosted by Plymouth Colony and attended by neighboring Wampanoags. That's it. That's the whole thing. Well, to this account, the Reverend Young added an influential footnote. And let me tell you as a historian, there aren't a lot of influential footnotes in, in history, but this is one of them. And it reads, as you can see on the bottom, this was the first Thanksgiving, the harvest festival of New England. Well, this, this primary source was actually widely read, and over the next 50 years, various authors, artists, politicians, and lecturers disseminated Young's idea until Americans took it for granted. Now, predictably, New Englanders were the first to tout the pilgrims as national founders and their dinner with the Indians as a template for Thanksgiving. But for the rest of the country to go along, the nation first had to subjugate the tribes of the Great Plains and the Far West. Only then could white people stop vilifying Indians as bloodthirsty savages and give them an unthreatening role in a national founding myth. The Pilgrim Saga also took hold when it did because it had use in the nation's culture wars. Yep, they've been going on a long time. It was no coincidence that the Pilgrims emerged as founding fathers amid popular anxiety that the United States was being overrun by immigrants, Catholics, then Jews, and Orthodox Christians, unappreciative, supposedly, of the country's Protestant democratic origins and values. Additionally, treating the pilgrims as the epitome of colonial America served to minimize the country's record of racial oppression, past and present. Better to highlight a story focused on the pilgrims' religious and democratic principles instead of on the Indian wars and slavery more typical of colonies, including those in New England. Through such means, Northeasterners could redefine the so-called black and Indian problems as southern and western exceptions 
to an otherwise inspiring national heritage. So what I'm saying here is that though Americans eventually assumed that the Thanksgiving holiday had been associated with pilgrims and Indians since 1621, that tradition was a product of white Protestants in the 19th century, particularly Yankees, asserting their cultural authority over European immigrants, Americans of color, and other regions of the United States. This invention became tradition by the early 20th century, and it has remained so in no small part through American schools holding annual Thanksgiving pageants in which students dress up as pilgrims and Indians to reenact the first Thanksgiving. I suspect many, how many of you have, have participated in these pageants? <laughs> Me too. I, I myself remember participating in such a performance in which we sang My Country Tis of Thee. There's a piano here. I considered singing it to you. I'm not going to impose, impose my singing on you. But you might know the song. In it, we praised America as a sweet land of liberty and the pilgrims as my fathers. Hmm. The point of this exercise was to have a diverse group of school children learn about who we as Americans are, or at least who we're supposed to be. Even students from ethnic backgrounds would be instilled with the principles of representative government, liberty, and Christianity, while learning to identify with English colonists as fellow whites. Leaving Indians outside the category of my fathers also carried important lessons. It was yet another reminder about which race ran the country and whose values mattered. Lest we dismiss the impact of these messages, let's consider the experience of a young Wampanoag woman who told me that when she was in grade school, the only Indian in her class, her teacher cast her as Chief Massasoit in one of these pageants and then had her sing, this land is your land. <laughs> this land is my land. At the time, she was just embarrassed. Now, as an adult, she sees the cruel irony in it. Other Wampanoags have told me about their parents coming to school to object to these pageants and associated history lessons, so-called, that the New England Indians were all gone, only to have school officials question their claims to be Indian. Authentic Indians were supposed to be primitive relics, frozen in some kind of Stone Age existence, not modern people. So what were they doing in school? Speaking English, wearing contemporary clothing, and returning home to adults who had jobs and drove cars. By 1970, Frank James, the third in our sequence of native revisionist historians, had reached the limits of his patience with this nonsense. James was born and raised in the community of Aquina, or Gayhead, on Martha's Vineyard, which had long ranked as one of the poorest communities in Massachusetts. Nevertheless, James grew up determined to succeed and represent his people. As a teenager, he even adopted the Wampanoag name Wamsutta, after the eldest son of Usumiquin, who preceded Pometacom in calling on the Wampanoags to resist colonialism. James's inner drive even carried him all the way to the New England Conservatory of Music, where he studied trumpet, 
And then, when no national orchestra would hire him, because racial segregation, to the Nauset Public Schools on Cape Cod, where he became director of music. Yet his passion was political activism and the study of Wampanoag history, because he understood that knowing the past was critical to reforming the present. And what he read in the primary sources made his blood boil, because it bore little relation to the Thanksgiving myth that hung around his people's neck like a millstone. So when James was invited to speak at a state banquet celebrating the 350th anniversary of Plymouth's founding, he saw it as a rare opportunity to set the record straight. Yet when he submitted a draft of his speech for review, white officials rejected it as too inflammatory. James, for his part, found an alternative script drawn up by the state to be so childish and untrue that he pulled out of the event altogether. Instead, he drew up plans for a commemoration where there would be no censors. Inspired by the Red Power Movement for Indigenous Rights and Justice, James organized a National Day of Mourning to be held on Thanksgiving Day, 1970, at the site of the Massasoit statue overlooking Plymouth Rock. Remember that name? In choosing that name, James hearkened not only to the National Days of Mourning held after the assassinations of President John F. Kennedy and the Reverend Martin Luther King. He also reached back to Apis's eulogy on King Philip. And like Apis incarnate, when James's moment came, he rose up before protesters from all across Indian country, media and onlookers, and delivered that inflammatory speech that Massachusetts had tried to suppress. He began with the poignant assertion that he had the right to the dignity of his humanity despite society's efforts to diminish him and his people. I speak to you as a man, he stressed, a Wampanoag man. I'm a proud man, proud of my ancestry, my accomplishments won by strict parental direction, despite his family and community suffering poverty and discrimination to social and economic diseases. He acknowledged to his white listeners that Thanksgiving, quote, is a time of celebration for you, celebrating the beginnings of the white man in America. But for James and his people, the day had doleful implications. It is with a heavy heart, he explained, that I look back on what happened to my people. Like Apis, James proceeded to tell a history of Wampanoag-English relations that turned the bedtime story of the Thanksgiving myth into a nightmare. His conclusion was that Usamequin's welcome to the pilgrims was, quote, perhaps our biggest mistake. We the Wampanoags welcomed you, the white man, with open arms, little knowing that it would be the beginning of the end, that before 50 years were to pass, the Wampanoag would no longer be a free people. To James, like Pometicom, like Apis, the moral of the first Thanksgiving was that the English and their successors had betrayed the Wampanoags who befriended them in their time of need. And this is the message that is echoed through subsequent national days of mourning, which the United American Indians of New England have continued to hold each Thanksgiving right up to the present day.
the question for all of us was and is how to move forward. The answer, according to Frank James, is to confront this history, including the fact, as he put it, that the Wampanoags still walked the lands of Massachusetts. James also urged his fellow Americans to consider Indians as worthy of the same respect as everyone else. Let us remember, he counseled, the Indian is and was as human as the white man. The Indian feels pain, gets hurt, becomes defensive, has dreams, bears tragedy and failure, suffers from loneliness, needs to cry as well as laugh. If the American people followed his counsel to extend their Indian countrymen and women basic compassion and acknowledgement, it would make Thanksgiving Day 1970 a new beginning toward what James called a more humane America, a more Indian America, in which Native people could, and I quote again, regain the position in this country that is rightfully ours. There are so many reasons for Americans to follow James's lead and attempt to tell the history of, Pilgrim, of Plymouth and Thanksgiving with three-dimensional Wampanoags at the center. Thanksgiving eclipses Columbus Day as the one time per year for considering the Native American role in the country's past. It's bad enough to have gotten the story so wrong for so long. It's downright inexcusable to continue the annual tradition of having teachers, politicians, and television producers traffic in the Thanksgiving myth, and residential homes and shopping centers sport decorations of happy pilgrims and Indians. These practices dismiss Native people's real historical traumas at white hands in favor of depicting their ancestors as consenting to colonialism. To call the consequences harmless is to ignore the chorus of Native Americans, our fellow Americans, who say the hurt is profound, particularly to their children during the month of November. This population has already suffered far more than its fair share in the creation of the United States. It shouldn't matter, but it does. Indians have also contributed disproportionately to the military in every single one of the nation's wars from the very beginning, more than any other ethnic group in the United States. In a pluralistic country, it's morally unacceptable to allow the celebration of a national holiday to damage part of the nation's people, never mind the first people, or for that matter, all the people. Whereas the identity politics of marginalized groups tends to focus on achieving justice and equality, or in the Indian case, also sovereignty, white identity politics has always centered on oppressing others. And yet there's been too little public reflection about how the Thanksgiving myth teaches white proprietorship of the nation. Why should a school-aged child with the name of, say, Silverman, identify more with the pilgrims than the Indians? Why should they be we? After all, such a student is unlikely to descend from either group, and the descendants of both groups are Silverman's fellow Americans. If the student is taught to think of both pilgrims and Indians more dispassionately as they instead of we, as historians do, 
it might be a step toward a more critical understanding of history in which the actors can be seen as more fully human, with all of the virtues and shortcomings that one would expect to see in any population. At the same time, if the student is taught to think of both groups more inclusively as we, aware of the associated risk of appropriation, it might be a step toward a more compassionate national culture. And boy, could we use it. What you're seeing here, by the way, on the map, I mean on the slide, is there's a typical textbook map of colonial America in, in 1750 or so. Note, not an Indian to be seen on the map, as if it was manifestly destined for Europeans to dominate the, con the continent. Well, here's a real map from the 1750s, and even Europeans couldn't deny that Native people were everywhere. This is a close-up just to the, uh, the west of Lake Michigan. There are native names all over this map. The vision I'm sharing here would have school curriculums treat Native American history as basic to an understanding of American history in general. Such lessons would include the civilizations indigenous people created over thousands of years before the arrival of Europeans, the ways they have suffered under and resisted colonization, and I think maybe most importantly, how they've managed to survive and adapt to modern life while maintaining their distinct identities and defending their indigenous rights. Units on American government would address the sovereignty of Indian tribes as a basic feature of American federalism. The public is utterly ill-equipped to discuss this issue. Such a shift might also feature bringing Indians and their concerns into the national conversation, including having presidential candidates hold serious discussions about their Indian policies and the state of Indian country. That's happening in the Democratic primary this time, by the way. For the first time, I've never seen it before. I want to see it in the general. If the public continues to associate pilgrim Indian relations with Thanksgiving, I think the very least we can do is get the story straight with Wampanoag actors and perspectives at the center. Imagine if instead of trafficking in the mythical Thanksgiving, we as a country reckoned with the story as told by Pometicon, William Apis, and Frank James. I'm not naive. I, I realize the challenges are significant at a great many levels. Many Americans are uncomfortable with Native American history. It tends to turn patriotic episodes inside out and heroes into villains, or at least deeply flawed heroes. It loosens white claims on morality and authority. It raises political and cultural questions about justice. It threatens to tear down monuments and rename buildings. But confronting this darkness also promises to shed light cultivate national humility, and most importantly, signal to Native people that the country values them as us. As one gracious Aquina Wampanoag elder once told me, we do ourselves no good by hiding from the truth. I think she was talking about all of us. Amen.